When it was built, it was called the largest, safest, and modern hotel west of New York City. But when a fire broke out there early one June morning, dozens of lives were senselessly lost. Today we're talking about the LaSalle Hotel Fire of 1946. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get started, this episode deals in the loss of life due to fires. Listener discretion is advised. Holy cow, I can go down a research rabbit hole on the dumbest stuff. First off, the street LaSalle in Chicago is named for René Robert Cavalier Sur de LaSalle. Forgive my French, a famous French explorer who came to Chicago in 1680. He spelled his surname with a space, but there are a bajillion places that do not use the space. Just know what I'm saying, LaSalle, there is a space. You may not hear it, but it's there. Also, the hotel was originally called Hotel LaSalle, but gradually became known as LaSalle Hotel. You'll hear me use both names. For reference, while many think of LaSalle Street as the one leading up to Chicago's financial center, that's the Board of Trade, it actually extends nearly 15 miles from 1400 North all the way to 146th South in suburban Dalton. Sure, there are interruptions in the path, but you get the idea. Chicago in the early 1900s was really coming into its own. Still riding off the high of the World's Fair of 1893, Chicago was doing all it could to erect taller buildings, improve transportation, and construct expensive hotels to appeal to tourists and the wealthy elite. In June of 1907, it was announced that a grand new fireproof hotel would be erected on the northwest corner of LaSalle and Madison, pretty much right in the heart of downtown Chicago. Designed by noted Chicago architects Hollibird and Roche, it would be built just southwest of City Hall. That comes into play later on a site formerly occupied by a five-story building. May 1st, 1908 saw the beginning of construction of the hotel. Of course, the building of the hotel was not without its problems. On February 4th, 1909, a laborer named Vito Tavinia, working on the construction crew, became a human torch, according to news reports, when a gas can he was holding exploded in his hands and ignited. Running down the street on fire, he was spotted by policeman Thomas Hines, who tore off his overcoat and smothered the flames. The worker was then taken to a nearby hospital. A tile layer strike in March of 1909 stopped the installation of encaustic and mosaic tile in the hotel and all over the city. The steel frame of the hotel rested on 105 concrete caissons, which extended down to bedrock 110 feet below street level. And because I had to read this over and over again, I have to mention it again, as it was touted as fireproof. Many, many buildings were presented as fireproof in Chicago around this time because of, you know, that whole great Chicago fire from 40 years before. Come to think of it, the Iroquois Theater, which burned just a few years before the building of this hotel, resulting in more than 600 deaths, had been advertised as absolutely fireproof. 
At opening in September of 1909, the 23-story Hotel LaSalle, billed for $8 million, offered guests fine dining, great accommodations, hot and cold running water, and easy access to the city's top spots, all for, on average, $5, roughly $144 in today's money per night. The walnut-paneled lobby was incredibly ornate. The rugs, paintings, tapestries, this place truly had it all. Except, well, we'll get to that. A July 1911 ad claimed, quote, The restaurants of the Hotel LaSalle are cooled by a continuous supply of pure, washed air passing over a field of ice. This was before air conditioning was widely in use. And the entire building, perfectly ventilated, offers a cool and delightful retreat from the city. Now, of course, I'm curious as to how the air was washed, but it also claimed to have the only roof garden in Chicago. Now, this was a hotel for the elite of Chicago. Even Potter Palmer's ultra-wealthy widow Bertha, who could have hung out at her own lavish hotel, the Palmer House, enjoyed dining at the LaSalle Hotel's Blue Fountain Room. The Hotel LaSalle was the home of the Illinois Republican Party's headquarters for many years. Presidents Taft and Calvin Coolidge spent time at the hotel, and it was home to countless conventions, weddings, and various meetings of all sizes. And a little nugget for my friend Kelly Marshall, who runs Chicago Movie Tours. Performers such as Gene Kelly appeared at the Hotel LaSalle. In a November 1975 appearance on The Tonight Show, Gene Kelly and Johnny Carson had this exchange. The third voice you hear is comedian Checky Green taking a very lazy shot at Chicago. Did you ever fall, I mean, in front of an audience when you're... I fell once in front of an audience in an actual performance at the LaSalle Hotel in Chicago in 1933. <laughs> and I broke my arm. And, uh, Did you fall or duck in Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> and I got up and I took a bow and I, I walked off. Yeah. I broke, broke my arm. Fell on a greasy spot on the, on the uh, dance floor. Yes. That's the only time. Look at that. Even 42 years after this event, the LaSalle Hotel was still memorable for Gene Kelly. Maybe not for the best reason. During the Great Depression, the LaSalle Hotel ran into financial difficulties, and in 1935, the LaSalle Madison Company paid $337,000 cash and around a million dollars in back taxes to acquire the hotel. It was later leased and then bought in 1942 by the Roanoke Hotel Corporation. In August of 1945, the Chicago Association of Commerce sponsored a contest among 100 towns, villages, and unincorporated areas of Cook County in conjunction with Fire Prevention Week, scheduled that year for October 7th through the 13th. The kickoff luncheon for this event was held at the LaSalle Hotel, attended by fire chiefs and village presidents from the communities, with the featured speaker being John C. Craig, the Illinois State Fire Marshal. So many trained fire officials, and yet less than one year later. June 5, 1946, the LaSalle Hotel has 1,059 registered guests in their 886 rooms. 108 employees are on duty. 
Due to a post-war housing shortage, many guests were limited to just two or three day stays, but the hotel also had a handful of long-term residents. After midnight, the Silver Grill Cocktail Lounge, located on the ground floor of the hotel just off the walnut-paneled lobby, had a few people enjoying some late-night adult beverages. About 12.20 a.m., someone thought they smelled wood burning. Moments later, smoke and a flame shot up from under the paneling on the south wall of the lounge. Instead of calling the fire department, a former Marine and a few hotel employees sprayed a bottle of seltzer water at the visible flames and threw some sand at it. What they didn't realize is that they were nowhere near the base of the fire, and their efforts did little to delay what was to come. fire burst through the wall and across the highly flammable ceiling. As the hotel was without any type of sprinkler system, the flames had the upper hand. Within moments, the cocktail lounge was engulfed. The fire spread quickly across the wood-paneled lobby. The flames fed by the rugs, furniture, paintings, and layers of flammable wood lacquer. The fire reached the two open staircases and two elevator shafts and shot upward. On the second floor of the hotel was Julia Berry, a 41-year-old woman who had worked the switchboard at the hotel for 11 years. When made aware of the fire, she notified the fire department. As many as 15 minutes had passed by now. Ms. Berry immediately began calling room after room to alert the guests to the danger. Her co-workers attempted to get her to leave, but she refused, saying there were still too many rooms to notify. 20-year-old Robert J. Might had been discharged from the Navy the day before. He and two friends had just left the hotel to get sandwiches when they heard the distinct sound of fire engine sirens. They looked back at the hotel and seeing smoke ran back to help. Running up the fire escape, they entered the hotel on the third floor and began pounding on doors to rouse sleeping residents and leading them to fire escapes. They went from floor to floor, alerting as many people as they could at great peril to themselves. Firemen would later credit the three men with saving as many as 30 people. Chicago Fire Department Engine 40, Hook and Ladder 6, Squad 1, headed by Chief Eugene T. Freeman, the commander of the 1st Battalion, arrived to find the first floor and beyond overtaken by flames. The delay in notifying the fire department made their job that much more difficult. Freeman instructed his crew to drop hose lines and begin battling the blaze while Truck 6 raised its 85-foot aerial ladder for rescue purposes. For those of you who listened to the Our Lady of Angels episode, you know that back in the day Chicago had a series of fire alarm boxes around the city for civilians to alert fire stations of blazes. Back in 1946, firefighters also used these even when at the site of a fire. In 1946, as the LaSalle Hotel burned, only three fire units in the entire city had two-way radios. Eugene Freeman had one of his guys go 200 feet to the closest firebox to transmit a second alarm. After a series of increasingly urgent alarms, 61 fire companies and 300 firefighters responded to battle the blaze at the LaSalle Hotel. Shorter ladders were extended up to the lower floors, and some guests at the hotel nodded bedsheets in order to climb down on their own. 
The firefighters at ground level, armed with dozens of hoses spraying water against the fire, began to make progress. With the fires in the lobby dying down, Battalion Chief Freeman brought a group into the foyer to search for victims. Weakened by the fire, a section of mezzanine broke loose, crashing down and trapping 30-some firefighters. Those outside ran into the building to rescue their fellow firefighters. Most seemed okay, except one. Battalion Chief Eugene Freeman was critically injured. He was transported to a nearby hospital, but later died from smoke inhalation. One of the hotel guests who was able to make it to safety was a blind 23-year-old woman named Anita Blair, a lecturer who had been a resident at the hotel since the previous November. Hearing the hysteria outside her 11th floor room, she calmly put on her robe and slippers and made her way to the door. She was unable to smell the smoke as she had lost that sense in the same accident seven years before that took her sight, but said she could, quote, taste it. A man helped her and her seeing eye dog fawn out the window and onto an exterior fire escape and down 11 floors of stairs. Ms. Blair's calm demeanor was noticed by others. She later told the reporter, quote, Probably I sensed the hysteria more than others. This made me realize more than others the importance of remaining calm. Besides, I was worried about fawn. Any lack of composure on my part would have affected the dog, end quote. The Anti-Cruelty Society would later give Blair and her dog Fawn an award for exceptional kindness done by a human being to an animal and the other way around. Sixty-one people died that night or within days of their injuries. Hundreds more were hurt. Many of the dead were brought to nearby City Hall and laid out for identification purposes. Nearly 1,100 people that night were saved. The next day, once the flames were doused and the smoke cleared, the horrible process of identifying many of the dead continued. Among those identified included Julia Berry, the heroic switchboard operator who had refused to leave her post. She was found slumped at her switchboard, overcome by smoke. There were five high school seniors from Newton, Iowa, who had been given the trip to Chicago by their parents as a graduation gift. 33-year-old Leonard Salter, his wife Gertrude, and their 7-year-old son Leonard III also perished in the fire. Salter was an associate professor of agriculture and economics at the University of Wisconsin and was scheduled to receive his Doctor of Philosophy degree at the University of Minnesota the following week. They were in Chicago to meet up with Salter's parents for a family road trip. Mrs. Florence Jackson, 58, was a resident of the hotel. She was also the widow of Howard Jackson, who had been the vice president of the United States Grain Company when he died in 1923. The widow Jackson had been involved in litigation for more than 17 years with her deceased husband's company over disputed assets. The day after the hotel blaze and Mrs. Jackson's death, the jury awarded her $1 million, that's a little more than $14 million in today's money, in her civil lawsuit, an award that went to one of her nephews. One of the seven-plus hospitals to which victims were taken 
was the Henroten Hospital at Oak Street in LaSalle. Based on its proximity to the hotel, it makes sense. But the reason it jumped out to me is one of those killed in the fire was Perry Swern, a married father of four and one of Chicago's better-known architects at the time. He designed the Harriet McCormick YWCA building, and as he was considered a specialist in hospital architecture, had designed the Henrotten Hospital. Although he lived in Oak Park, he had been ill and didn't want to travel home and potentially get his family sick. Just four days later, almost every detail on a smaller scale of the LaSalle Hotel fire came to life again when fire swept the Canfield Hotel in Dubuque, Iowa. The fire that struck the 55-year-old 150-room Canfield Hotel was also discovered shortly after midnight in a cocktail room called the Red Lounge. It traveled quickly out of the lobby, trapping 129 guests in smoke-filled rooms upstairs. Fortunately, most escaped down ladders and fire escapes, but 15 died that morning, including two attempting jumps into fire nets below. There were four hotel fires within six months in the United States in 1946 that claimed a total of 228 lives, including two firefighters. Groups were formed to study the fire and recommendations were made for better fireproofing of stairs and elevators. Fire detection systems, proper alarms, automatic sprinkler systems for hotels, fire alarm boxes outside hotel lobbies. It was also proposed that instructions be posted in hotel rooms informing guests of the nearest escape route in case of fire and other safety tips. I'm not sure if this was the first anyone had thought of doing this, but the next time you're in a hotel room and you see the card on the back of the door, you'll know that the LaSalle fire played a small part in getting those there. One month after the fire, a gold veil medal and $1,000, a little more than $14,000 in today's money, was posthumously awarded to Julia Berry, the telephone operator who sacrificed her life trying to warn others of the fire in the LaSalle Hotel. Her son, John Joseph Berry, age 16 and left an orphan by his mother's selfless act, received the award on her behalf. This was just the 15th gold medal awarded since the fund was established in 1920 in memory of Theodore N. Vail, former president of the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, and awarded to, quote, telephone people for noteworthy acts of public service, end quote. Now, admittedly, I had never heard of the Theodore Vail Award, but discovered that as of 2020, 498 employees and retirees of AT&T have been awarded gold, silver, or bronze veil medals and a cash prize. Following a $2 million renovation, the LaSalle Hotel reopened in July of 1947. The Silver Grill Cocktail Lounge, thought to be where the fire originated, was also rebuilt and given a new name, the Hourglass. A year and a half after the deadly fire, Building Commissioner Roy T. Christensen announced that slightly more than half of Chicago's Class 1 hotels, those having 25 or more rooms above the second floor, had complied with the new ordinance inspired by the LaSalle Hotel fire, requiring fire-resistant enclosure of stairways and elevator wells. 
of the 256 hotels listed, only 138, about 54%, had completed the alterations or had applied for building permits. The remaining hotels were subject to fines. Three on that list that had not complied were the Ambassador East and Ambassador West hotels and a YWCA on South Ashland Avenue. Some of the hotels had been given hardship variations. Christensen was quoted as saying, Visitors to Chicago are entitled to every safeguard. I have an ordinance to enforce, and I'm going to enforce it vigorously. I don't intend to budge an inch from safety. After the hotel was reopened, things appear to have returned to normal. Wedding receptions, banquets, and other events were held there once again, just like they were pre-fire. The hotel operated for another 29 years before being sold to developers in 1976 who leveled it and built a boring white office tower. Chicago is a city defined by fire, but fortunately we are a city that has ever so slowly learned from the mistakes of the past. Thanks for listening to today's episode about the LaSalle Hotel Fire of 1946. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today or have a different topic you think might be a good fit for an upcoming episode, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. There are links in the show's notes to books, documentaries, and other materials if you'd like to learn more about any of the topics discussed. Anything you buy through the links, not just this stuff, may earn the podcast a small commission at no cost to you. I will be posting news articles, pictures, and ads from back in the day related to this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. Check those out and give us a follow, please. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on those social media pages. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. If you would, please take a moment and like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible. Maybe go see a play. Learn more about whatever city you live in. Stay safe. Thanks for listening.